the first question is, only by love for Arunachala can we destroy ourselves. How can we increase the love for Arunachala? The love that we have for Arunachala is given by Arunachala. So ultimately, the responsibility lies with him. But as Bhagavan makes clear, we have to play our part. The love for Arunachala is the love to surrender ourselves, the love to merge back into our source. In other words, it's the love to turn back within and to be as we actually are. So the opposite of that love is our vishayabhasanas, which are the seeds of all our likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. So the whole process of uh, spiritual practice of sadhana is uh, a process of strengthening the love to turn within, which is what is sometimes referred to as satvasana, the inclination just to be as we actually are, and to weaken all the vishayabhasanas. That is what the, this, this practice of self-surrender and self-investigation is all about. So the answer to your question, how? Just by persevering in this, this practice, this simple practice of self-attentiveness that Bhagavan has taught us, and self-surrender, of course. Self-surrender, the most perfect way to surrender ourselves to him is to cling to self-attentiveness. But even when our mind is going outwards, we should need to we need to reduce the the speed the the the, the, the velocity or the, the momentum with which we're rushing outwards by accepting that whatever is happening in our life is happening by his will and is therefore good for us so slowly slowly by by accepting his will and yielding our will to his will that will help us in the, in the core practice of surrender, which is turning our attention back within. So by this practice of self-investigation and self-surrender, this is the way to increase this love. This practice is driven only by that love, but the more we practice, the more that love will increase. Because the nature of vasanas is that vasanas have no strength of their own. Vasanas have only the strength that we give them. And we give Vasanas strength by allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So if we're constantly allowing ourselves to be swayed by our Bishaya Vasanas, we are thereby strengthening them. If instead of that, we allow ourselves to be swayed by the, um, by the Sat Vasana, we are thereby strengthening the Sat Vasana, the love to turn within, and weakening the Vishayabhasana, the inclination to go outwards. So it, that is why in Bhagavan's path, practice is absolutely essential. Without this practice, we cannot succeed in this path. As Bhagavan said, this is not, this is not anyone's birthright. We have to work for it. The work we have to do is turning within and, and thereby surrendering ourselves. So by doing this, we will unfailingly uh, in, uh, nurture the, the seed of love that he has uh, sown in our heart. And with, with our uh, little effort and the, the, the flood of grace that he is always pouring upon us, this seed of love will grow into our heart until it consumes us entirely.
Um, sometimes an analogy is given of a small, um, a small banyan seed that gets caught in the crack of a rock and its roots begin to spread out. And eventually that, that small, small banyan seed will grow into a big banyan tree, which will split the rock in two. Likewise, the Bhagavan has sown that seed of love in our heart. That seed will eventually split this chitjadagranti. It'll, it'll annihilate ego. But we, we, we need to do our little part. We need to be willing to yield ourselves to him. And we can yield ourselves to him most effectively by turning within, by clinging to self-attentiveness. The second question is, to willingly want self-realization is somehow scary as I do not know what or how I will be, what my state will be like. I have and we have no experience and no knowledge the Bhagavan assures it is an everlasting happiness, but still it is a thought. The truth, the truth is but we do have knowledge of that. That is, there, there is never a moment when we are not aware I am. That awareness I am is our real nature. That is what we will experience. But now, the real nature of I am is seemingly obscured because we have risen as ego and we are now aware of ourselves as I am this little person. I am Michael or I am whoever. This is obscuring the, the full clarity of self-awareness, which is what we actually are. Every day in sleep, we experience that fullness of Satchitananda. None of us fear to go to sleep. We all, when we are tired, there's nothing we want more than to fall asleep. So sleep is welcome to all. Um, so as Bhagavan says in, um, for example, in the, um, I think in both the second and, and, um, and third verses of, uh, of Uladu Napadu, in, in the second verse he says, um, Okay, in, 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 the, in the second verse, he says, Yang ketu tanneil nitral talai. I perishing, standing in the state of oneself is best. And then in the third verse, he says, um, more or less the same thing, but he says, Uluhu vittu, leaving the world, tanne ondu, knowing oneself, ondru irendu tanatru. Remaining without uh, one and two is literally what it means, what it implies in this context, uh, uh, putting an end to or, or being without the, uh, all disputes about duality and non-duality. Nan atra annile elakum opuam. That state in which I has thereby perished is agreeable to all. How, why does Bhagavan say it's agreeable to all? Because we experience that state every day in sleep and nobody finds sleep disagreeable. We, when we wake up from sleep, we remember it was very pleasant. We slept happily, but we can't remember 
clearly what we experienced in sleep. All we are aware of is, yes, I slept. So we are aware of our existence in sleep, but the nature of our existence, we are not aware of. We are aware of it while we're sleeping, but when we come to waking state, we have now again covered ourselves with these adjuncts. So we're now again aware of ourselves as, I am this person, I'm such and such a person. So since we're not aware of ourselves as we actually are now, we cannot recall what we actually were in sleep when we were aware of ourselves as we actually are. So, but sleep at least gives us a big hint of how pleasant that state is. So there's no, no one ever fears to go to sleep. No one ever finds sleep unpleasant or disagreeable. If we are very enthusiastic about being active, we may try to remain active for as long as we can, but sooner or later, sleep gets the better of us. That is, the tiredness overpowers us, and then we want nothing more than just to sleep. That is, if, if we're offered all the pleasures in the world, none of them will appear agreeable when after a few hours when we become too tired to continue enjoying them then nothing else is agreeable than to fall asleep uh, what is called apmanyana or self-realization is nothing but the state of eternal sleep sleep is characterized by what sleep is characterized it's a state of just being as we are it's a state devoid of ego and because it's devoid of ego it's devoid of everything else because everything else seems to exist only in the view of ego so the state the, that state in when it is eternal when we experience it eternally as we always actually are experiencing it is always our eternal state but we, when when we no longer seem to rise from it, when we remain in that state eternally, recognizing that that is what we actually are, that is what is called self-realizational jnana. So being without ego in sleep is pleasant for all of us. Being without ego eternally, how much more pleasant it will be. So we have no reason to fear this. And if we think deeply about Bhagavan's teachings, we will that it's not sufficient just to read Bhagavan's teachings superficially. We need to think deeply about the implications of what he says. So if we think about these implications, we will be able to convince ourselves, at least on a conceptual level, yes, that state is agreeable. And once we have recognized that that state is agreeable, then we will try to attain it. But it is not that we are attaining something that we don't have now. Even now that is our state. Even now we are in that state. It just seems to be covered by ego, by this false awareness, I am this body. So if we remove this false awareness, what remains is the real awareness I am, which is infinitely pleasant, infinitely satisfactory, infinitely happy. That is our real nature. But, and the more we follow this path, Bhagavan's path of self-investigation and self-surrender, the more we will experience that pleasantness permeating our life. That is, our life still, so long as we rise as ego, we still have so many problems to face and we still have so many difficulties and sufferings come and all these things. But somehow, these, the more we surrender ourselves, the lighter all these problems become, the less serious they become. And so the more pleasant our life becomes. So Bhagavan's path, the goal of Bhagavan's path is infinite happiness. And, 
as Bhagavan said, the, the, the nature of the path cannot be different to the nature of the goal. If the path was of a different nature to the goal, it couldn't lead to the goal. So uh, Bhagavan's path is a happy path. The more we surrender ourselves, the more pleasant our life will be. That doesn't mean our problems are going to be solved. That doesn't mean we're not going to have to face all the problems. Problems will always be there. So look, the nature of embodied existence is problems. But we will, we, our attitude to these problems will change. We will no longer take them so seriously. Yes, okay, we face the problems. We have to pay the bills. We have to do this. We have to do that. We have to... Um, we have to interact with people who are not always so pleasant. We, there's all sorts of difficulties are there in life. Sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we, we're in pain. Or sometimes we experience bereavement. Those we love pass away. There's so many difficulties we have to face in life. But we'll be able to face all these with a greater degree of equanimity to the extent that to which we surrender ourselves to him to the extent to which we follow his path. So the path itself is a proof of the nature of the goal. The more we experience how pleasant this path is, the more we will be convinced that the, that the goal we have set ourselves is the only worthy goal there is. Or the goal that Bhagavan has given us is the only goal, worthy goal there is. There's a question that uh, Thiru Sampat would like to ask. Yes. So, uh, Namaskaram, Michael. Namaskaram. Um, so, yeah. In Upadesha Undiyar, uh, Bhagavan says, Nishkamya karma dantru puja japa or dhyana purifies the mind. Yes. Um, so, this uh, desireless action yes. uh, done for the love of God. Yes. Um, so, what does this love of God mean? I know you touched upon love for Arunachala, but can we take um, love for God as love to realize the self or uh, desire to realize the self? Uh, can I do puja or japa or dhyana uh, to dis uh, with a desire in my heart to realize the self as nishkamya karma or yes. no? Yes, that is... Bhagavan doesn't take nishkarmiya karma and bhakti to be separate. That is, nishkarmiya karma is not a separate path from the path of bhakti. The preliminary stages of the path of bhakti are nishkarmiya karma. That is, the puja, japa, and dhyana, they're all karmas, they're all actions, actions of, of body, speech, and mind. So these will all are all means of purifying the mind. They will purify the mind to the extent to which we do them with love for God. If you're doing your puja, japa, and dhyana with desire to get money or to become rich or famous or to pass your exams or whatever it is, that is not, uh, even that is beneficial, but it, it, it's a very roundabout way. But the true nishkarmiya karma, the true love for God is when you are doing it not for what you can get from it, but just for the expressing your love for God. That will purify the mind. But Bhagavan says that kartano kakam nishkarmiya karma, karte tirti akdundi para, that will, uh, that will purifying the mind or, or rectifying the mind. 
Gatibari Kambi Komunipara. It will show the path to liberation. What does he mean by show the path? Kambi Kom means it will cause to see. Uh, we in English, we translate to show, but a more uh, precise uh, um, translation of Kambikum is it will cause us to see. How will it cause us to see? That is, when the mind is purified, it is thereby clarified. And in that, in that clarified mind, it will become clear what is the correct path to liberation. The correct path to liberation, the direct path, is only this path of self-investigation and self-surrender. So puja, japa, and dhyana are all good. But when we have come to Bhagavan's path, He's given us the ultimate path. And as he says in verse 8 of Upadesha Undia, Anya Babatin Abanahamahum Ananya Babame Undipara Anatinam Utamum Undipara. That is, rather than Anya Baba, that is, so long as we are doing um, puja, japa, or dhyana, we are worshipping a name or form of God. We are taking God to be something other than ourselves, something anya, that the, all the names and forms of God, any name or form of God that we may choose to worship is something other than ourselves. So, so that is anya baba. But Bhagavan says, rather than that anya baba, ananya baba. Ananya baba means meditation on God, not as something other than ourselves, but as ourself alone, in which abhanahamahum, in which he is I, so with the understanding that God is that which is shining in us as I, meditating on him, not as something other than I, but as I alone, in other words, being self-attentive, that is anatinam utamam, that is the best among all. So having come to Bhagavan's path, if we like to do puja, japa, and dhyana, no problem, but we should, along with our puja and japa and dhyana, we should also be introducing this, uh, this self-investigation and self-surrender, this holding on to I. So even when you're doing puja, who is it who's doing puja? I am. So you can, while doing the puja, you can be holding on to I with the understanding that the God you're worshipping outside is what is shining in you as I. Likewise with Japa and with Dhyana. But best of all, to drop all these karmas and come to the state of just being. That's why Bhagavan says in the next verse, in verse 9 of Upadeshundia, Bhava Balatinal, by the strength of this Bhava, that's referring to the Yananya Bhava, the self-attentiveness, by the strength of this self-attentiveness, Bhavanatita Sat Bhava Tirutale, being in the state of being, which is beyond. Bhavana. Bhavana there means uh, meditation in the form of mental activity. Uh, that is Parabhakti Tattva. So Parabhakti is not doing anything. It's not doing puja or doing japa or doing dhyana. It is just being as we actually are, being in our state of being, which is beyond all mental activity. How can we be in that state? Only by the strength of Ananya Bhava, only by the strength of self-attentiveness. So I, I don't mean to be discouraging you from doing uh, puja, japa, or dhyana, if that's what you like to do, but don't stop with that. Bhagavan's teachings are all point. Bhagavan is always pushing us further, further. Go deeper within. Yeah. So if I, if I may add, uh, yes. sorry, uh, yes. if I may yes. add to the question. So, uh, yeah, I'm trying to do self-inquiry uh, or self-attentiveness. Yes. So um, I'm just trying to increase that um, um, 
or motivate or uh, uh, encourage me to do more of self inquiry so that's why i'm trying to see if puja or japa will help me uh, push towards that or if you think uh, i don't have to um, do that and just focus on self inquiry then yeah i would just well, do that then the, the greatest aid to uh, self investigation self inquiry is to read and think deeply about bhagavan's teachings because bhagavan's teachings are directly pointing us towards this so if you feel the need for for an aid or a support the greatest aid is to be found in bhagavan's teachings that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do for, for example if you um if you're repeating say bhagavan's name ramana 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 or arunachya shiva that if you're doing it remembering that he is that which is shining in your heart as i that can that that japa can help to direct your attention back to yourself so there is so many um there's so many ways in which we can use puja japa and dhyana to to help us in this path but we shouldn't be just doing these these actions without making that effort to turn within the more we make the effort to turn within the better it is and as we get drawn deeper and deeper into this path the uh, puja japa and dhyana will begin to lose their attraction because what sure. can be easier than just attending to ourselves and what can be more a more direct way of worshiping bhagavan what is the best guru puja attending to i because that sure, is the absolutely. path shown by guru so uh, slowly slowly I, i'm not saying you should drop it all, uh, all all at once but slowly slowly let these things drop off and let them be replaced by self attentiveness sure thank thank you so much michael that really helps yeah bhagavan never discouraged people from doing any practice that appealed to them but he was always um very gently trying to point people back to uh, the fundamental need to to be self attentive to hold on to self attentiveness because this is the sure. key to it all yeah i'm actually attracted to self in- investigation or inquiry i'm just yeah. trying to intensify that like by supporting like um, uh, yeah. puja japa but it makes sense thank you so much yes okay the next question is um when people ask me what my passions and interests are and what my dream or purposes in this life are my answer would be something about bhagwan's teachings however i feel that it's better not to say that since these teachings are so radical that the majority of people would think that i'm crazy if i tell them that my aim is to recognize my true nature of pure awareness and dissolve into it on the other hand if i say that i don't have any passion or purpose or interest in life i would be considered dull and a nihilist or something like that uh, um any suggestion about this thank you <laughs> um yes this is um this it can be a problem for all of us that is we we are not here to advertise bhagwan's teachings we are not here to talk about his teachings to people who are not interested um but if we if they want to know what we're interested in and we begin to tell them as you say when they take us to be crazy so um we have to it depends who we're talking to uh 
if if it's someone who has no interest in spiritual things at all, just say you're interested in what everyone's interested in. You're interested in your career. You're interested in your family, or you're interested in whatever, whatever, uh, whatever they would normally expect you to be interested in. You can say you're interested in that. Because ultimately, if we're interested in this path, we're interested in the reality of all these things. Are you interested in football? Are you interested in cricket? Are you interested in cinema? Are you interested in politics? Are you interested in this or that? We're interested in that which is the reality underlying all these appearances. So we, without, without lying, we can say, yes, I'm interested in all these things. But we're, we're, we're not interested in the things as such. We're interested in the reality underlying them. And that reality is the reality underlying ourselves, namely I am. So, but Bhagavan, there are some verses Bhagavan translated from Yoga Vashista in Uludunapdu Anabandam. The gist of those verses are uh, that, that these instructions given by um, Vashista to Rama. Uh, he says, uh, oh, oh, hero, uh, play your part in this world as if having desire, as if having passion, as if taking all these things to be real, act your part in this world, but inwardly be free of all these things. So outwardly, we all have a role to play. We, we, we are children to our parents, husbands or wives to our spouse, uh, parents to our children, uh, uh, brother or sister to our siblings. We, uh, we have so many relationships, I mean, both family relationships and relationships in the outside world. In the office, we may be someone's boss and we have a boss above us. And so we have so many relationships. We play all these parts knowing that this is not the real thing. The real thing is what is shining in us as I. So outwardly, we, pay, we, we don't have to appear in any way different to others. We can play, we can act like a perfectly normal person with perfectly normal interests. But inwardly, our burning passion should be to turn within and know who am I. Nobody need know about that. If, if, for example, we're married and our husband or wife is not interested in that, we need not tell them. We, 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 don't, we, we can be following this path without anyone knowing it. Uh, um, Elena. Uh, hello, uh, first of all, hello, hello, Mike, mm -hmm. hello, everybody. Hello. Thank you very much for today's talk. And uh, I just, uh, it's just a remark. I, I wanted to, um, uh, I mean, about uh, this uh, agree agreeable to everybody a state of uh, deep sleep. Uh, that, um, uh, I mean, it seems that, of course, it is agreeable to everybody, but uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, mostly people, uh, understand the state like uh, uh, state when you can when your body can relax and uh, I mean that it is like physical state you you, you just relax physically and uh, uh, not everybody uh, can understand it like uh, state of our normal uh, like uh, being I mean uh, like our natural st uh, state in all senses uh, because um, normally people take it like some dull state. So what I wanted to say that 
it means that to develop this sense uh, that it is our natural sta uh, state where uh, there is no uh, activity, uh, you have to practice some spiritual practice. I mean, that you have to uh, purify first your mind, maybe to the extent that you can already understand this. Uh, so, I mean, that... Uh, Yes, it's our natural state, but to understand this, you have to first practice something. You have to be interested in these things, and then you you can already understand that, yes, it is uh, our natural state when we are not interested in all these worldly activities, uh, and we, understand, we feel that it is something uh, not natural for us. I mean, to be bodies and to act uh, in the world like bodies. I just wanted to... Yes, that, that, that's true. That is, the, the deeper we go in this practice of self-investigation, the clearer the nature of sleep will become to us. That is, at first, when people first hear but we're aware in sleep, many people have difficulty understanding that. We, if we think about it carefully, it, become, it becomes somewhat clear to us. Uh, yes, what Bhagavan says, we, 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 though we're not aware of anything, we are aware. We, we begin to recognize that if we think about it a little deeply. But the real clarity of the nature of sleep comes to the extent to which we go uh, deep in this practice. The deeper we go in this practice of self-investigation, the clearer it will become to us, the more blindingly obvious it will be to us that that uh, sleep is a state of, 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 of clarity, a state of awareness. It's not a state of dullness. So, so what you say is true, but there's no amount of reading books or of thinking about these things. In other words, no amount of sravana or manana can be a substitute for the actual practice. Uh, that's why Bhagavan was always emphasizing the practice. Reading Bhagavan's teachings, thinking about his teachings is a tremendous help. But the, um, the, uh, what is most important of all is the practice. It's the, the real clarity. We can get a certain degree of clarity by reading Bhagavan's teachings and thinking deeply about them. But for that clarity to become deep and, and, and to become more and more clear will happen only to the extent to which we put it into practice. Have, have I understood what you were saying? Is that uh, what you meant? Yes, yes, absolutely, Michael. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes, this is what I want, just also wanted to say, that without practice, it is quite uh, difficult to really understand that it is not just a physical relaxation um, yes. and resting, but it is uh, uh, real, real re relaxation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, Michael. Yeah. Well, even ordinary people can understand it's physical relaxation. It's also mental relaxation. But uh, the, the nature of what we experience in sleep becomes clear to us to the extent to which we practice this separating ourselves from the body and mind in the waking state. We separate ourselves from the body and mind to the extent to which we hold on to that fundamental awareness, I am. Uh, yes, it is a mental relaxation, but uh, people normally think that, uh, of course, they have to have mental relaxation to yes. have more energy 
to yes. act uh, next day, next yes, morning, yes, or yes. whenever. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. Thank right. you. The last question is, um, when there is an abundance of uh, Bhagavan's grace, like sunshine, why does the ego seem to be blocking receiving it in the individual jiva? That analogy I told about the drama Krishna Paramahamsa used to give, so long as we rise high, the rain of grace is always pouring off us. So, um, yes, we can also compare grace to sunshine, but that analogy, comparing it to, to rainwater, explains that. That is, grace is ever-present. Grace is, grace is our own real nature, to tell the truth. But so long, to the extent to which we're looking outwards, we are... We're, we are overlooking grace. We are misusing the grace. The grace is the light that is shining in our mind, but is illumining our mind. We are using that grace to know the world, to, to really get the true benefit of grace. We need to turn that outward-facing light of the mind back within to merge back in its source. The more we turn within, the more we subside, and the more we are thereby overwhelmed by grace. And eventually grace will swallow us entirely. Bhagavan sometimes used to say, grace is never lacking. The people complain that God is not gracious to them. That is always a false accusation. God is all, God couldn't be more gracious. He is so gracious that he makes himself available to us as our very nearest and dearest. He's always shining in our heart as I. He's always available to us. But we are so ungracious, instead of attending to him, we are constantly allowing our mind to go outwards after the, the trivial pleasures of this world. So the, the grace is lacking only on our part, not on the part of God. He is, al he is always gracious. He is always... <clears throat> with immense love for us, with all-consuming love for us, he has made himself available in our heart as I. But we ignore him and look outwards and say, I am this body, I am this person. We, 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 <clears throat> we uh, misappropriate that I, apply it to this person, and we get ourselves into trouble. So we need to return this I to its rightful owner, who is God. And we return it to him by turning back within and merging back into him. Jolini, I had a question. I, I put it in the chat box, but I, oh, don't, I don't know where it went to. So where, I think you better ask your question and then I'll go on to the others. Shall I do it, I do it now? Yes. Yes, please. Yes. What, what I didn't understand, well, I've got to find where I was. Um, in the last, uh, in about the last... Yeah, about the last paragraph, it says, Therefore, having attracted us to himself, he is now duty-bound, like a mother, to complete the task that he began from the very moment that we first rose as ego. And what I didn't... The thought that came up in my mind after that, uh, Michael, was why isn't the whole universe perfect? A whole universe is perfect. You are... <laughs> 
you were perfect, but it's the imperfection exists only in the view of ego. Right. If ego were real, the imperfection would be real. But if we investigate this ego, we find that it's not real. So actually, everything is perfect as it is. It is, it is, sometimes it is said, it is not, it is not shrishti dosha, but drishti dosha. Shrishti dosha means it's not a defect in creation, it's a defect in our outlook. Shrishti means creation, drishti means our view. So, but, but all the defects we see in the world are defects in our view, not in the world. Right, but when it says he, he is now duty-bound, like mm. a mother, to complete the task that he began from the very moment that we first rose as ego. Yes. And that's, that's when it, I suddenly thought, well, why all this betrayal? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. Okay, it, it's not his fault that we rose as ego. We have risen as ego. Um, <clears throat> And so we've given him, by our rising as ego, we give him this duty to save us. There's right. a, one of the words in Sanskrit for grace is anugraha. Anu means follow, going after, and graha means grasping. So as soon as we rise as ego, it becomes God's duty to run after us and catch us. If you've got a small child at home, and that child runs out on the street, you are duty bound as a parent or grandparent to run out and, and, or as any adult, any responsible adult, we are duty bound to go and grab the child and save them from the dangers of uh, the street. Like mm. that, as soon as we rise as ego, we, are, we have imposed upon him this duty. Because he is our mother and father, when we misbehave, we are imposing on him a duty to come and put it back in order. Is it that we then don't listen to him or? Yes. Ah. Even now we're not listening to him because he is always speaking to us, but in silence. So in order to listen to his silence, we need to become silent. Right. And we will become silent only by not rising as ego. So if we want to listen to him, if we want to pay heed to his words, we need to turn within. And then we will hear the eternal teaching that is going on in silence. Thank you. Thank you. And what is silence telling us? Just be. Just be. Sumayaru. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> There's a question. Uh, so recently I took some decisions which can be considered to be downright financial blunders. This is, troubling, um, this is troubling me. How do I tackle my mental turmoil? Was it my destiny to take those foolish decisions? Or did I take those decisions driven by will? Please guide. Perhaps both. Um, it must have been destiny because you cannot experience anything that is not destiny. So if, for example, you do something, and as a result of your doing that, you lose money, you were destined to lose that money anyway, so you were made to do that. But supposing we do something, supposing we, um, someone tells us about some get-rich-quick uh, scheme, if you invest your money in this, 
in in a year your money will um, double or you'll get a tenfold return on it or something. Greed may prompt us to, to okay, let me put all my money in that. I want to get to, if I put a, a thousand rupees or dollars or pounds or whatever it is, if I put in that, then after one year, I'll have 10,000. So out of that greed, we do it. And we lose the money. Let's say we lose the money. Our losing the money is according to destiny. So our doing that is according to destiny, but it's also according to our will, because we have the greed of, of foolishly investing our money and losing it. Because of our greed, we did that. So many actions we do are driven both by destiny and by our will. So just whatever actions fructify, that whatever actions seem to produce a result, those actions must be done according, must be actions we're made to do in accordance with our destiny, because only uh, any, whatever we do, whatever is necessary for us to do in order for our destiny to unfold, in order for us to experience our destiny, we are being made to do by God. But just because we're being made to do it by God is not an excuse. We don't thereby exonerate ourselves because we also did it out of greed. So it may have been Bhagavan who, who made you do that, but you also made yourself do it because of your greed. So, but why Bhagavan taught us about Prarabdha, what he said about Prarabdha, whatever you are destined to experience, you are going to experience. Whatever is destined to happen is going to happen. Whatever is not destined to happen will not happen. So Bhagavan taught us that to make us, to help us to be unconcerned about whatever happens. Since it's already uh, preordained, whatever to, is to be experienced, why should I uh, concern myself about these things? That make the, the less we are concerned about the external events of our life, the easier it will be for us to turn our mind within. If we're constantly worrying about money, about how to make more money, and regretting when we lose money, our mind is good. That's all outward going activity of the mind. Our aim is to turn within. So perhaps Bhagavan made you lose that money in order to free you from that burden of the money. Now you no longer have that money, you no longer need to think about it. There's no use in crying over spilt milk. The money that was with you is no longer with you. Regretting it is of no use. You, 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 can, you cannot get it back by regretting it. So why should you waste your time regretting it? So just take it. Bhagavan has freed you from a burden of having that money. So we have to... Whatever happens, we have to take it in a positive way. We have to we have to recognize whatever happens. We may not understand why it happened, but whatever happens, it happens for our good, whether we understand it or not. So that loss of money couldn't have happened if it wasn't your destiny. And it wouldn't be your destiny if it was not good for you. So don't regret it. Accept it as his will and move on. Money comes and money goes. It's, uh, money is, uh, is the most undependable thing in this world. One day you may have lots of money. The next day there may be a stock market crash or whatever, and you lose all your money. I mean, so many 
people have experienced making fortunes and losing fortunes. So um, money is never, never, we, we should never put our trust in money. We should never rely on money because money will always disappoint us. Even if we accumulate vast wealth, even if we become a billionaire or a centibillionaire, nowadays they're centibillionaires, people with more than $100 billion, uh, even if we have all that wealth, one day when we die, we're going to have to say goodbye to it all. For those who have many possessions and much attachment, death will be very difficult. Those of us who have, who have nothing... For us, death is relatively easy because we're not losing anything by dying. So it's best to be to, to live poor and to die without attachments than to live uh, a wealthy life and to die with so many attachments. Um, Michael, the next question is uh, the desire to the desire to surrender completely is itself a desire, but true surrender cannot be complete without complete desirelessness. How do we reconcile this? Okay, we need to draw, we need to distinguish desire from love. Anything we wish to accumulate, to gain for ourselves, in other words, the liking for anything other than ourselves is a desire. But in this path, the path of surrender, we are not desiring to gain anything. We are desiring to give up everything, to lose everything. So that is not desire, that is love. So but it is only, it is only uh, by love that we are willing to, that is desire is always about me, me, me. I want this for me. I want this for me. Whereas love is about giving. If you, if you truly love a person, you don't think about what you can get from that person. You think about what you can do for that person. That's just an analogy. Likewise, in the, in the spiritual path, true love for God is not about what we can get from God, but what we... Many people go to temples and mosques and churches and synagogues. What do they go? They go asking for um, health, wealth. Um, the well-being of their children and grandchildren, or they're asking God for so many things. That is desire. If we ask, if we go to the temple or mosque, or even go inside our own heart and ask God, "Take me, I give myself to you." That is love. So surrender is not desire. Surrender is love. Wanting anything for ourselves, wanting to gain anything is desire. Wanting to lose everything is love. I hope that adequately answers that question. Is the distinction clear? We, we, that, that is, we, we use words in various ways. So we may talk about desiring to surrender, but though we call it desire, it is not a desire like other desires. So it is more apt Described, uh, described as love rather than desire. And we talk about our desire for so many things in this world. Oh, I love this. I love that car. I love that, uh, that big house. I would love to have that for myself. Or oh, I love this person. A lot of what we take to be what we call love is actually desire. And in the spiritual path, what we call desire to surrender 
is actually true love. Uh, the question is, uh, how can we get into the heart effectively? Should we repeat I, I mentally, or is it more like a feel or a feeling? How can we know if we are in the heart? And also, how can we do this activity? Uh, um, and, and how can we do this in activity? Should we ask who is doing this action or who is feeling like this? The heart means the center. What is the center of all our experience? That is, it, all experience entails subject and object. All experience occurs to the subject. So it is the subject who is experiencing all the objects. So in the center of all experience is the subject, the experiencer. In the center of the, the experiencer is ego. That is the, the false awareness, I am this person. So now I'm aware of myself as I am Michael. That, that, that I that is aware of itself as I am Michael, that is ego. That is what is experiencing all of this. But in the center of that, that mixed awareness, I am, this, I am Michael, I am this body, I am this person, is the pure awareness I am. That pure awareness I am, that is the heart. So... How do you know whether you're in the heart? If you're attending to anything other than yourself, you're going out of the heart. If you're attending to yourself, that is going into the heart. To the extent to which you attend to yourself, to the extent to which you uh, focus your attention on yourself, on your mere being, you thereby subside into your being, into, your, into the heart. So we are in the heart to the extent to which our attention is focused on ourselves, focused on the heart. That is, we ourselves are the heart. Focusing our attention on the heart is being in the heart. I hope that's clear. Um, this is but a question. It becomes clearer and clearer to the extent to which we put it into practice. That is, the, the words give us, the words are pointers, but the, the real significance of the word, the real implication of the word becomes clear to us only to the extent to which we put it into practice. The next question is from Bharat, uh, and he asks, uh, does a sattvic diet help us in discovering the self or uh, in the process of self-inquiry? Thank you. Yes, Bhagavan has clearly said that in the ninth paragraph of, of, um, of Nana. He says that um, by mitasattvika ahara niyama, that is by the, 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 rest, the, the restraint or the, the restriction of eating moderate quantities of sattvic food, but by that the, the sattva guna in the mind will increase and that will be an will help us in this practice. So yes, definitely, it's a it's a it's a help, but it's only a help. It, it's a, it cannot be a substitute for the practice. But because our aim is to attend to ourselves, whatever will help us to attend to ourselves, we should avail of that help. So, um, uh, and eating sattvic food in moderate quantities is not difficult. But sattvic food is plentifully available. There are plenty of fruits, vegetables. Uh, plant foods that we can eat 
And we don't need to eat a lot. The body needs only a, a limited amount of food to sustain us. So we eat in a moderate quantity, sufficient to nourish the body. And um, it, it's very simple. We don't really have to think very much about it. So the, the less we attend to these things, the better. But we, because we can, we can, we can follow this uh, niyama, this uh, restraint, without um, without giving too much attention to it. Thank you, Mike. The last question is from Fran. Fran, would you like to ask the question? Yes, thank you, Shalini. Mm. Um, hello, Michael. Hello. Um, I just have a question about when Bhagavan says to Arunachala, um, no, if you abandon me, uh, using the metaphor of a maiden, if you abandon me, everybody will think you're terrible. Yes. Now, I kind of think, well, why would Arunachala care if everyone thinks he's terrible? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, where's the... This is a love song. Yeah. Bhagavan is free to, to chide Arunachala. Will Arunachala ever abandon? No, of course he'll never abandon. But that's a way of... Uh, it's, but, but, but talk between two lovers, you need to be a lover to understand the talk of lovers. So lovers may chide each other, but in this case, Bhagavan is saying, if you abandon me, the world will blame you. That is his way of, 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 um, of pleading with Arunachal never to abandon him. Not that Arunachal will ever abandon him, but the problem is Arunachal will never let go of us. The trouble is we let go of him. So we, what we are actually afraid of is our own weakness. We're afraid, but we may, um, that is, we are aware that Arunachala has far greater love for us than, than we have for him. So with that, with that understanding, we feel the inadequacy of our love. So because we are aware our love is inadequate, we pray to him not to abandon us. So uh, we, we, we need to enter into the spirit of these verses to really understand them. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> if, if a wife says to her husband, if you all treat me, the whole world, if you, if you don't do this for me, the whole world will blame you. She doesn't mean that she's going to go out and announce to the world, oh, my husband is such a bad fellow, he didn't do what I wanted him to do. No, it's just a way of, it's between the husband and wife, they can, have, they, can, they can talk in so many ways in private between each other. They understand. Bhagavan, will not Aranacha understand the language of Bhagavan? When Bhagavan said the whole world will blame you, Aranacha understands the spirit in which that is said. We can't escape anyway, can we? We can't escape from him and he can't escape from us for yeah. the simple reason he's our own real nature. So how yeah. can he ever, how can I ever escape from me? Yeah. Delicious, thank you. We, we may think we're escaping from him, but we never escape from him because wherever we go, he is always with it, in us, shining as I. Yeah. 
So that's why in the, um, in the previous verse, he says, um, is it the previous verse? Um, no, in one of the verses, um, uh, oh, yeah, in the very next verse, escape this flame. Uh, why did you make me think of you? Sorry, uh, sorry. Now who can leave? You cannot leave me and I cannot leave you. So that is once Aranatya has made us think of him, he has signed a contract that he will save us. So that means he will not let go of us and he will not let us let go of him. So we are bound now to him. We cannot leave and he will never leave us. 